the media landscape in America is busted. Americans are on to the omissions, the half-truths, and the outright lies being propagated against we, the people. Your host, Tom Harris, will bring you the other side of the story. The 28th Annual United Nations Conference of the Parties, or COP28, to the Framework Convention on Climate Change, just wrapped up in Dubai United Arab Emirates. Until the very last minute, it appeared that delegates would not achieve a significant statement to end the conference on a high note, or at least that's what I had hoped would happen. However, in overtime meetings that kept delegates up all night, they finally agreed to, and this is a quote from the final text, transitioning away from fossil fuels and energy systems in a just, orderly, and equitable manner, accelerating action in this critical decade so as to achieve net zero by 2050 in keeping with the science. Frankly, I was surprised by this as delegates from OPEC nations, even the COP28 president, Sultan al-Jabr himself, said some pretty sensible things about climate and the continuing needs for fossil fuels. But in the end, they appeared to have backed down. And while not agreeing to the phraseology that promised a fossil fuel phase out, they agreed to the statement I just read. To help us understand what really transpired at COP28, I have two guests today who are actually there on the ground. Greg Rucker and Mark Morano. Both of these fellows have been on before, too. So that was great with Jay Lair when he was doing this with me. It's sad that he's not with us anymore. Craig Rucker is president of the Washington, D.C.-based Committee for a Constructive Tomorrow, or CFAC for short. You can check them out on the web at cfac.org. Craig founded CFAC in 1985 with David Rothbard and has helped them build many parts of the organization, including the student branch of CFAC Collegians for a Collective Tomorrow. My other guest is Mark Barano, and Mark and I made trouble at the Copenhagen Conference, <laughs> COP9, in 2019, which was fun. He's the executive director of ClimateDepot.com, the go-to website for millions of climate realists across the world. Mark began his career working for Rush Limbaugh in 1992 and then went to CNS News and finally served as Director of Communications for Senator Jim Inhofe of Oklahoma. Mark is the author of the blockbuster book, Green Fraud, Why the Green New Deal is Even Worse Than You Think. Craig and Mark worked together to produce the award-winning film Climate Hustle, which was the number one box office film in America during its one-night showing in 2016. They also produced the acclaimed Climate Hustle 2, starring Hollywood actor Kevin Sorbo, released in 2020. So welcome to the show, Mark and Craig. Hey, Thank Tom. You. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, great. Great to see you. So tell me, maybe we could start with you, Craig. Could you tell our listening audience what these Conference of the Parties actually are and what they're hoping to accomplish? Yeah, these Conferences of the Parties have become kind of annual shindigs with the UN. They started back in the 1990s, actually, after then George H. Bush actually signed a global convention on climate change. And as part of that particular treaty, the nations are supposed to get together every now and then uh, to try and oversee its implementation. Uh, initially, when it took place, it wasn't exactly every year, but starting in around 1997, it became kind of an annual event. And it was around then that we went to our first one. I've been to 25 of the 28. I think Mark, oh, wow. 20 of them over 28. But uh, these are opportunities for nations to get together, kind of uh, 
see how they're going to be able to uh, implement uh, it, uh, the whole climate change agenda. It uh, undertook a couple different transitions. One occurred in 1997 with the Kyoto Protocol, which was trying to turn that climate convention that George H. Bush signed, which was voluntary, into something mandatory. And of course, that failed when, um, uh, first of all, the Congress wouldn't ratify it. And then George W. Bush came in and he would not allow uh, the U.S. to sign on board. And then later, it undertook another uh, metamorphosis and became the Paris Accord in uh, 2016, 2015, late 2015, 2015. Yeah. And uh, since that time, again, they're coming together. And every year, it's kind of the same scenario. They start mm -hmm. uh, rushing the public with a bunch of frightening stories, as they did this summer about Hurricane Hillary, Hurricane Idalia, Maui wildfires, have a national assessment report that comes out terrifying. Then you go to the meeting that we have to make quick, rash decisions. And there were a few of them at stake we'll talk about in a moment. And uh, there's always a villain, too. In this particular case, it was the chairman, as you mentioned, Sultan Al-Jabber, but also big oil companies or countries like Russia, China, Saudi Arabia, uh, that were seemingly holding everything back, but it, they always end the same way. There's a happily ever after at the end where all the countries come together and uh, truth and justice win out. The good guys win, the bad guys don't prevail. And that's what you alerted, uh, alluded to, Tom, when you said that there's now this transition, a, a, a almost meaningless word change that somehow <laughs> will make the difference for the world. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, Mark, you know, when when we went to the Copenhagen conference in 2009, there were 30,000 people showed up. Of course, that was far greater than the capacity of the Bella Center. Yeah. But that that at the time was considered the biggest conference ever, not just in climate, but ever in the history of the world. Yet I understand at this conference, there was even more people. <laughs> I think it was at 97,000 with the official registered participants, but there's probably even <laughs> more than that because people bring their spouses, they bring support staff. You have all of the uh, security details for all the governments, all the private jets that fly. So, I, yeah, I was wondering the same thing. This might be, you know, bring in Ringing Butlers and Barnum and Bailey. This might be the biggest <laughs> traveling road show in the history of the world. I'm not sure. I'm not aware of any other thing that has 100,000 people that moves around. I, I guess World Cups might be, and who knows? Taylor Swift concerts. Taylor Swift. Well, you know, Taylor Swift concerts. But in terms of public policy, I can't imagine anything beats this. Uh, you know, yeah. there's nothing. I mean, maybe a UN Earth Summit has as many people. I don't know. Uh, I've been to 18 UN climate summits and two Earth summits. So for a total of 20. Uh, at, although I've been to a couple, I went to one in Cancun at World Trade, but a WTO meeting in Cancun one time, non-UN. But what was weird about this, and Craig has said it right, there's always that, you know, the whole drama they play out. But at one point you had Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, they were the only ones talking sense defending fossil fuels at the entire conference. And they were looked at as though they were, you know, criminally insane and out there. What ends up happening is they have to go along because this is the community of nations, 190 nations. And if you don't go along, you get ostracized, you get vilified, there'll probably be economic sanctions, trade impacts, a whole slew of different things. And think about it, Tom, in the entire history of this process, I think we can only come up with two names that may have bucked it, Donald Trump and Bolsonaro. I, I mean, Craig, do you can you think of any other names over the last few decades? Certainly not George W. Bush. 
I mean, so no one is willing. Those are the only two names I've ever heard of denigrate the UN and Vaclav Klaus. Vaclav Klaus, right. In Czech Republic. <laughs> Outside of that, it just doesn't happen. They all go along and they don't want to be seen as an outlier. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's interesting. Bob Lyman was a international foreign affairs person. He's our economics advisor. And he said, you don't bring 97,000 people to a conference if you actually want to make some decisions. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it, it strikes me that the thing is theater more than anything, isn't it? The reason there were so many, if it was double last year, is because Sharm el-Sheikh was harder to get to. Egypt may not have had the appeal. In 2007, I went to Bali, Indonesia with U.S. Senate as a U.S. Senate staffer. State Department paid my $16,000 round trip business class airline. I stayed at a five-star hotel on the ocean in uh, in Bali with luau's every night, uh, you know, palm trees. It was like a lavish meal. The <laughs> State Department per diem was incredible. That gives you an idea of why these conferences are so well attended. Are, are you suggesting, yeah. Mark, that we at CFAC don't treat you as well as the U.S. Senate? <laughs> yeah, that's what I, <laughs> yeah. I, would, I would honestly say, Tom, another big reason that these are getting bigger and bigger, and I think Mark can attest to this, is that, <clears throat> and, and you saw it a couple cops ago, uh, certainly in Sharm el-Sheikh, but certain, even more so this time, it's, it's turned into a business meeting. Uh, if you were attending these things 10 years ago, you might have seen these booths with uh, a World Wildlife Front, Friends of the Earth, you know, uh, Citizens for Gaia worship or something. I don't know. But there would be different <laughs> groups that are out there uh, putting out fairly radical environmental stuff. At this one, I would say most of them were vendors trying to sell their wares. It could be mm -hmm. I talked to one of them, for example. He was a guy trying to sell some battery recharging technology, uh, exchanging business cards with other people who were in the solar industry and renewable industry. Uh, you talk to them about climate. I didn't get the hostility that I used to get because we were talking to activists. Uh, these business people seem to be, oh, well, that's nice. I, you know, They may even themselves kind of question it, but there's money to be made. So they go to these things and they become big circuses. So I I would say a good many of them that are tagging along to these things have absolutely no ideological axe to grind. Oh, well, that's actually progress. And do you think it'll be more that way in Azerbaijan next year and eventually Brazil the year after? Well, I always say that a conference that takes place, what, between Iran and Russia in a country that's right between Iran and Russia, what could go wrong? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, yeah, that's where they're going to have it next year. It'll be very, very curious as to what transpires there. I do find it curious. If you go just to the last year's with Sharm el-Sheikh, that's a country, Egypt, that gets 90% of its energy consumption comes from uh, oil and gas, fossil fuels. This year, they upped that to 95% plus, which is going yeah. to the United Arab Emirates. And I understand Azerbaijan is also a major oil and gas producer. I don't have the figure on that one yet, but uh, they certainly are choosing locations that are kind of the poster child of what the Green New Deal is not. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Azerbaijan is actually the second largest of the plus in the OPEC plus after mm -hmm. Russia. So they, they actually are heavily invested in oil. So Mark, I mean, you think the environmentalists had a point when they were objecting to this being a trade show for the oil and gas industry. <laughs> I mean, it absolutely has turned into that. It's not just oil and gas. 
It's also a, a way for all these renewable energy uh, investors to go suck at the government teat because that's <laughs> what go up. I went last year to London with uh, Lord Christopher Monckton. He invited me to a one of these uh, a green, I don't want to call it greenwashing, but one of these green energy seminars at the nicest hotel uh, in London. And I think it was the Dorchester or something like that. But they literally, all of these people, we had a debate, very rare, Moncton and I, two-on-two debate. The audience was about half an approval of our skeptical positions. They didn't care <laughs> about the science. These were biz, mostly conservative businessmen who saw money-making opportunities to get these grants, subsidies from the mandates and solar. And that's what these conferences have turned into. I had a friend go to Dubai who does transportation research. And he went and talked to all the EV people, was trading business cards, looking for business opportunities. And if you, and Craig's exactly right. If you went years ago, it was all about, you know, all the environmental groups and the wacky and the, you know, the earth firsters and all that stuff. It's now you go and you see Google and Bank of America and Ikea, and you'll see the World Health Organization and all these other international organizations. It's really transformed because it's become that whole globalist agenda on one hand as well. Yeah, it, it sort of strikes me that they may be sabotaging themselves by allowing this to happen, because, I mean, when I was in the Paris COP, uh, you know, back in 2015, the one of the common themes actually was anti-capitalism. In fact, we had a lot of protesters there who were actually saying it's, you know, it's not climate change, it's change the system, get away from capitalism. So those kinds of people must eventually kind of reject the whole the whole conference idea. I, I would say you're kind of correct. I mean, I, in this regard that, uh, but I, there's always been kind of two components to these. The people that want to make money that really, I think, uh, use the issue of climate change to further kind of a far left or globalist agenda, if you want to call it that. And then you have the true believers, which were the ones that uh, manned these vending booths uh, that were kind of wacko, like Mark was talking about. So I think, uh, yes, this is weeding it out and becoming more just the people who are business as usual. And mm -hmm. uh, they do have side events, though. I do want to be clear. It's not entirely all corporate. In fact, we interjected in a number of them. Uh, we brought with us a guy named Peter Murphy, who uh, did a lot of our correspondence on our website on that. And he would go and ask questions, kind of badger the people who are talking. And some of them were fairly out there talking about restructuring our economy, our society. Uh, you had feminist uh, workshops. You had uh, also a bunch of interfaith organizations talking about the spirituality behind climate change. Uh, so there are that there is that component. It's just not quite as visible. Yeah, we're the voluntary human extinction movement. There, <laughs> yeah, you don't get those kind of radicals. I actually went out of my way. They went extinct. Oh, yeah, I went right. out of my way looking for the booths, and I couldn't find anything there. That's what was so incredible. That you know, oh. it's really been sanitized the last few years with this corporate sort of takeover. Huh. Well, in a way, I would say that's a good thing, isn't it? I mean, from our point of view. No, no, I would argue no. I don't it's think a so. Shift no. of, it's a shift of strategy. They're bypassing democracy now. In the old days, they'd have the grassroots supporters there trying to win public opinion and you'd have pushing legislation and you'd have a... Nowadays, they're like, we don't need a vote on the Green New Deal. We don't need to vote to ban meat eating. We don't need a vote of anyone to ban gas powered cars. We don't need it because we're going to collude international organization, corporate government collusion, 
all of the banks, all the big corporations, they're going to go along with it. We have corporate banks now saying they're not going to give out car loans to anyone who buys gas-powered cars. That's a big corporate bank in Australia. So the takeover is actually more insidious and more dangerous. You're right that they're not really spending that much time with grassroots trying to convince people, make legislation happen. It's because they don't need they don't need no stinking democracy anymore. They figured <laughs> yeah. it out. And it really post-COVID, they've really figured it out because they want to use that model. That's why the 200 medical journals urge them to bring COVID into a public health emergency. I would even add to what Mark's saying is that uh, if you look at just some of the bigger things that made news, you had Kamala Harris flying across the ocean. She announces she's giving $3 billion to a global climate fund. Was that mm -hmm. approved by Congress? No, that's, huh. you know, that she just decided she would do that. You had John Kerry. Uh, there's a new fund they developed called Loss and Damage. Uh, now, it's pocket change. I, I think actually given Kerry married to Hines, you know, that they probably give out this amount of money. But it was $17.5 million that he wanted to water the trough with this new fund with. Nobody approved that. We didn't even huh. know that existed. I mean, it existed, I guess, started it back a year ago, but it didn't have any money and it's never been approved by Congress. It's kind of the diktats that Mark is talking about. And you can add to that some of the other stuff that's been done where you just have John Kerry flying over announcing that we're going to end coal in the United States. No vote. Nobody talks about this. I mean, West Virginia, which gets like 90 plus percent of its uh, uh, electricity from coal generation is probably pleased to know that John Kerry unilaterally just walked over there and announced that we're ending coal. Nobody elected this guy. He doesn't even have a real position. The guy's just a bureaucrat uh, uh -huh. that's unelected and has no real say or power to enforce this. But this is yeah. the type of stuff that's occurring, like Mark talked about, where it's just becoming kind of a diktat, you know, of mm -hmm. the people that just go over there and make these proclamations and then choose to enforce them bureaucratically. Yeah, I call yeah it sounds Kerry, like Canada. <laughs> Kerry's a climate potentate. Yeah, exactly like Canada. I mean, look at what how Justin Trudeau handled the, the freedom convoy. You know, he just called up the banks, called up the insurance companies, called them domestic terrorists, used the Emergencies Act first time in history. And once they were declared, you know, terrorists, essentially, they could cut off access to their own money, cancel their insurance. It's a way to control. And that's what they're doing. That was the, this, to simplify this whole U.N. summit, Tom. It's the intentional rationing of food, energy, and transportation. And that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to create these a crisis environment, a, a rationed environment where they're going to be in control of the flow of food, the, the organization of farms, the whole control of the global transportation system. During the conference, CNN had a huge article uh, calling for climate passports to restrict international travel for people. And the climate passport is you get a certain number of trips in your life and then you're cut off. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. France has already banned the two and a half hour or shorter flights there to save the climate. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So is this part of the climate lockdown that you've spoken about in the past, Mark? Well, that's exactly part of it. The whole strategy now is a corporate collusion, bypassing a democracy, to literally impose this agenda. And they, if they can get COVID climate officially rolled and merged in with the public health sector, which Anthony Fauci has done in two different medical journals, urged this, which the other all these 200 medical journals, including British Medical Journal, the Harvard School of Health has urged the same thing. This is one of those things that's going to happen. <clears throat> and that's why they want Joe Biden to declare a national climate emergency. It would give him 130 new executive powers 
according to the Center for Biological Diversity. And NBC News did a segment on the climate emergency powers. They said it would give Biden COVID-like powers. And if you recall, every mayor and governor had COVID-like COVID powers. They could just do vax mandates, mask mandates, close churches, schools, you know, cancel weddings, funerals, medical procedures, uh, issue stay-at-home orders without a single vote of democracy. Mm-hmm. And by the way, on that on that theme, uh, during the COP meeting, uh, the UK Guardian actually interviewed five IPCC scientists, and uh, they, they were fairly bold in what they put out, but oh, yeah, they're basically yeah. calling for a scientocracy. They said it's kind of troublesome when we have these meetings, these COP meetings, that nation states have so much say over how things operate. What really should happen is that the scientists, which uh, have to make the difficult decisions, I mean, countries are dragging their heels, scientists see the true threat we face from climate change, uh, they should be given the power to start making the decisions that everybody should have to follow. And that's actually the the sense that you got from at least five of the scientists that are, um, one of them, I think, is like second in charge of uh, the IP. So uh, that actually came out. And, you know, I think it was floated by the UK Guardian, because I guess to the author, or whoever wrote that, thought that maybe sounded like a not so bad idea. Jeez, yeah, yeah. They wanted they want Fauci like powers globally. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty telling moment there. They mm-hmm. no longer want since 1988. They've been a science advisory board. They now want the power to implement policy. They want the power to make things happen. They saw with jealousy, Tom what happened during COVID. They saw how unelected, nameless public health bureaucrats suddenly became dictators and very important. They could do whatever they wanted. In fact, our CDC director, Mindy, I can't remember, Mindy, I think it's Mindy Cohen. She bragged in this video, you could see her when she was the Massachusetts public health director. You know, I call up other public health directors and be like, are you going to allow football this week? Like, no, well, we're not going to do it either. They're just (laughs) the ultimate of power trips. And she got rewarded. She's now been promoted to our CDC director. So this this is the world in which we live. And the climate activists have been at this a lot longer than the public health, or at least a lot louder until COVID. And so they want in on the same tactics. And if you mm-hmm. read underneath that, you know, it's we, we we look at this, we laugh. We say, really, we're going to give up our democracy the way we run our country and let a scientific elite do that. It was actually, if you look at the comments under the Guardian article, there's people that agree with that. And ah. they think that the scientists do, have, you know, it goes back to even going before my time, Plato, uh, that there's always this intellectual elite that uh, is guided by altruism and can kind of through their enlightenment, lead humanity down the right path. And I think there's something hardwired in certain people that think that that's preferable to the chaos, messiness that we have with the democracy. It seems to me that the gateway drug, so to speak, for all of this is the the declaration of a climate emergency. Because once people feel it's an emergency, then they feel they can sidestep all the normal processes. So what you folks do, of course, is question the emergency, the fact that there is none. And so, you know, it's funny because a lot of people, they won't talk about the science, but, but I think it is important, isn't it? Well, there is an emergency. There's emergency not from climate change, but climate change policy. Uh, right. We're starting to see the uh, impacts of that uh, globally. Uh, we got uh, unreliable energy inflicting Europe uh, with brownouts, blackouts. Uh, we see what's happened in California. Uh, we, of course, see the environmental devastation that renewable energy is causing to eagles and offshore with whales and uh, other marine mammals. Uh, we have 
The component parts to make this are a human rights tragedy as they're using uh, child labor in the Congo uh, and a lot of them are Chinese companies and the Uyghur labor in China, which is slave labor. Uh, the whole thing is actually where the real problems are. Uh, mm -hmm. Climate change is, as uh, we, we have on Mark's website and that we chronicle everything that they talk about, there's almost no metric in which they're right, whether it's severe weather events, catastrophic uh, uh, hurricanes, wildfires, cats and dogs living together, whatever the issue is, <laughs> none of these things seem to be uh, uh, bearing any semblance to what the UN IPCC is claiming. Yeah, Mark, it, it's it's interesting. I've never seen a field before where virtually every single major argument they make is either wrong or it's the opposite. Like, okay. is that what you find that when you look at extreme weather or you look at sea level or temperatures or, you know, ocean acidification I and mean, the whole thing is wrong, isn't it? Yeah, in fact, I would say that it's pretty much equivalent to what happened during COVID, where they said masks worked, lockdowns worked, uh, vaccines were safe and effective, and you know you demand it. That was the only other parallel I saw. But you're absolutely right. From A to Z on climate, you know, and the way the way they get around it, Tom, it's pretty clever. Like you'll say polar bears. Polar bears are disappearing from Al Gore's books and movies. He made it a poster child in his <laughs> 2006 film. And what happened since then? Their numbers have only grown. We have yeah. uh, people like Susan Crawford, who's uh, the, the biologist, who the zoologist who studies them and all these peer reviewed studies. And even the indigenous people say they've never counted this many U.S. geological surveys said they're at or near historic population highs. So why what happened to polar bears? Al Gore, they did. They just he just dropped them from his sequel in his book. But people will still say it's worse than we thought for polar bears. And you're like, how is it worse than we thought? There's more than they've ever counted. <laughs> and the answer is. When current reality fails to alarm, you make scarier and scarier predictions of the future. So they'll say our projections of 100 years now are even more dire for the polar bears than they were 10 years ago. So that's <laughs> what they did. and that's what happens. I would argue two thirds or so of the climate scare is based on the climate model predictions. So that's how they get you, you know, sea level, which is doing nothing alarming. Oh, yeah. Well, look at our prediction. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> we need the green deal now. That's how they do it. And, and yeah. They can't. It's kind of like um, Paul Holt, Paul Ehrlich, Paul Ehrlich, who they literally ask him, were you wrong on your predictions? And he'll say, no, I wasn't wrong. I was just my timeline. They're still going to happen. It's kind of like saying you're going to die. Well, I haven't died yet. Well, you will die. You know, so that's <laughs> basically how they do this. They don't think they're wrong on anything. They think catastrophes just around the corner, even if they have to keep extending the deadline. Yeah. Al Gore did have an impact on this summit, too. I will say that it wasn't, um, you know, they. All, I, I kind of think one of the reasons they're having it in places like Egypt and in also uh, the United Arab Emirates is that whenever global warming conferences happen historically, there's usually a big snowstorm that buries it out. We call it the Gore. <laughs> yeah. Now, it did not happen in Dubai, so they picked that wisely. However, with the Germans, they were, of course, uh, unable to get to the conferences. They were snowed in. So yeah. I still that Gore made an impact uh, for some of the attendees trying to get to the conference. Yeah. Just before we go to break, Mark, I have a, a question. Is there a limit to how much they're going to exaggerate? And does it eventually threaten the whole movement when they get to the point where, for example, Joe Biden said that it's more serious. 1.5 degree rise is gr greater threat than nuclear war. I mean, is this eventually going to implode because people will stop taking them seriously? No, not at all. No. In fact, I would argue since Donald Trump's election, the media and the academia and the ruling class said, we're never going to allow this to happen again. 
So I would say pre-2017, you could actually have, and I was on MSNBC, ABC News, CNN, you would actually have debates. They don't have them anymore. They will not give any legitimacy. Uh, the CBS News anchor said he won't have a climate denier on for the same reason he won't have a Holocaust denier. That whole world's changed. When our first movie came out, Climate Hustle, we were the New York Times, Washington Post, Variety Magazine covered it, Associated Press. Suddenly, 2020, they just, it's, it's two different worlds. So they can get away with saying anything they want. They're not even trying to convince people. They could care less how absurd and ridiculous it sounds because only it's only an echo chamber they're listening. All the, uh, you know, the half of the population that doesn't care isn't even listening to how absurd what they're saying is. And there's no one to ever really call them on it because no one, even like scientists like Will Happer, Patrick Moore, they're not even allowed on those shows or in those venues anymore to even make a case. So it's all an echo chamber. They can pretty much do whatever they want. Uh, Michael Mann was on CNN and MSNBC this past week. He's comparing carbon dioxide and fossil fuels to donuts. He said, this is the reason we need these UN summits is if it's like going to the doctor telling you you have diabetes and you're saying, oh, well, I need to get off uh, donuts. And the, and the same thing with climate. There's, he's comparing it to we need to get off fossil fuels. Well, you know, fossil fuels are the donuts in this scenario and CO2 is causing the diabetes. This is how they distort science. He also said, look out your window if you want to see how climate is doing because of all the weather extremes. I mean, I look out my window all the time. I don't see anything, but no one will ever call him. He's on an echo chamber of MSNBC, CNN. So no, they could say anything they want and there's no one to call it. There, there's two different worlds now. There's no intersection is what I'm getting at here. And there uh -huh. used to be an intersection of that. And I, that's what I think has fundamentally changed in the climate debate since 2017, we'll say. Yeah, yeah. I get the impression that if you're on the side of the angels, you can say anything. <laughs> we got to go. We got to go for a break now. My guests today are Mark Morano and Craig Rucker. And in the second half, I'd like to talk about what you did at COP28. So we'll be right back after the break. The buildup of spike proteins is dangerous to your health. Global Healing's foreign protein cleanse detoxes your body, removing the spike proteins, allowing your body to repair from within. Formulated by Dr. Edward Group and by Dr. Brian Artis, Foreign Protein Cleanse targets and detoxes spike proteins in the body. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get 15% off using the code OUTLOUD. Global healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. Cofix RX Nasal Solution has completed the circle and is now offering throat spray with povidone iodine. That completes the protocol doctors like Peter McCullough recommend. If staying healthy is important, you'll want to make sure to add throat spray to your next order of Cofix RX. For a limited time and exclusive for America Out Loud listeners only, you can save 25% off your entire order. Let's double down against colds, flu, strep, RSV, HRV, COVID, and more. Click the banner or go to America Out Loud shop to get 25% off your entire order. Use coupon code OUTLOUD25. That's coupon code OUTLOUD25. This is Jody O'Malley with Nurses Out Loud. Did you know our body is made up of trillions of cells and inside each cell, redox signaling molecules are produced? These molecules hold a sacred place in chemistry because as we age, the vital communication of our immune system becomes less efficient. For the first time ever, ASEA brings you the power of these molecules in a convenient and potent form to provide your body with the essential support it needs to thrive. 
Ever since I toured their facility, I take two ounces in the morning and evening, and my vitality and energy has been restored at a time I needed it the most. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get your exclusive 15% discount by using the code OUTLOUD. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company designed the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. With the rise of independent media, we are now AmericaOutLoud.News. For the genius of the United States is not found in its executives or legislatures, nor its ambassadors, authors, colleges, or churches, nor even in its newspapers or inventors. The genius of the United States is we the people. AmericaOutloud.news. Liberty and justice for all. I'm back with Craig Rucker and Mark Morano. Craig Rucker, of course, is the founder of CFAC, and you can check them out at CFAC.org. And Mark Morano is executive director of ClimateDepot.com, and they both went to Dubai to take part in COP28. So, Craig, what was the purpose of CFAC going there, and what did you do? Yeah, Tom, I said, we've been going to these things. I, I've been to 25 of the 28 of them. And really, part of the reason is a lot of people ask, you know, what, where's this stuff coming from that we uh, have electric vehicle use? Where's this stuff coming from that we are into renewable energy? Where's uh, some of these things that we get smart meters and all that? We, we've when we're tracking the environmental and energy issues, realize that a lot of the genesis of these things happen at these UN meetings. This is where they, um, they brain trust and all the thinking starts and then trickles down to all the different countries. So that was our reason initially in going. Uh, also, we realized the media is not really giving you the full scoop on that. So a lot of our time in going to these is actually trying to dig and wade through What's actually occurring from our own perspective, we report back through our website. We do a lot of media there, um, you know, and reporting back. Uh, Mark, for example, just did a lot of media on Fox News, on uh, Newsmax, all these different outlets that we try to get the voice out. Uh, we even had some uh, reporters from France TV, too, follow us around for the day. Uh, oh, wow. Special on uh, skeptics. And uh so that's another component of what we do. We do try to do also some street theater. We did that uh -huh. in this particular COP. It's a little more dangerous when you're in a country like the United Arab Emirates or any of these uh, more Muslim countries. They don't take to joking around too much, but we <laughs> did it anyway. And we laid down in front of a, uh, you know, how the, all the activists on the on the left are laying down in front of traffic uh, around the country to make a point. We decided to lay down in front of the UN bus and uh, try and bring a halt to it. Oh, uh, well, I, I would be afraid that they might just drive over you. <laughs> well, there wasn't actually a driver. He was out, I think, smoking a cigarette next to it. So they were just getting oh, okay. in us. And uh, so we just kind of did the street theater. But it's a cute video. And we do stunts like that. We've also jumped out of airplanes in the past with banners and boarded Greenpeace ships and dropped banners off them. Uh, so we tried to do a little street theater to, and, and it's been effective <laughs> in drawing the media attention to the skeptic side. Sometimes we'll yeah. hold also press briefings. Uh, we'll bring scientists there 
um, former uh, Apollo astronaut Walt Cunningham we brought there, Roy Spencer we brought there, uh, Lord Christopher Buncton we brought there, and they tend to attract media and help us get our side out and talk to delegates. Uh -huh. uh, many who are there are not necessarily there because they're sold on climate change. Most of them are, but there's still a fair number that are just going because it's Dubai and they can uh -huh. get Christmas shopping done or something beforehand, and it's a nice place to visit. So we can reach them as well. Yeah, I really encourage people to take a look at cfact.org because you're taking a page out of the left-wing play agenda, aren't you? You're actually doing the street theater and stuff that they do all the time. Exactly. And in fact, if abs absent us, there are a couple other groups, it's fair to say, go there. I know that we were joined by the Heartland Institute, which is a very good ally of ours, and James Taylor over there. Sometimes the uh, Competitive Enterprise Institute also sends some people. These are uh, people that are kind of in the same family of realist organizations. And we'll spend our time when they hold these workshops, uh, kind of being the person that challenges the speaker or brings out a point that uh, the audience hasn't uh, thought of quite often to boos and hisses and ridicule, <laughs> but uh, nevertheless, try to make it a point. Mark, do you find that it's dangerous to go to these conferences and speak out the way you do? Uh, no, the, the only time we actually had real trouble was in 2016 in Marrakesh, when we, uh, after witnessing many protests at the conference, just people holding signs, we decided to get a cardboard cutout of Donald Trump uh, and we had a paper shredder and a copy of the UN Paris Agreement outside the media tent. And Craig was there with me. And we started I started shredding the UN Paris Agreement with Donald Trump saying Donald <laughs> Trump is going to end this agreement. And we were immediately surrounded by reporters from all over CNN. We ended up on the CNN half hour news loop. Wow. They immediately called UN armed climate cops. Craig did his best to keep them off. But eventually we were both ejected unceremoniously from the conference, had to wander the desert in Marrakesh, now only for about 100 yards, <laughs> length of a football field. But, but still, we wandered the desert. And then they came <laughs> back, armed cops, and seized my press releases. And then they revoked our badges and banned us. And it was you know, a pretty upsetting uh, incident there. But Craig can tell you, about, he, he was trying to delay them from coming. But the cops came immediately and they were armed with, with pistols. To me, it's kind of like going back to high school. I always used to like to do pranks. And one of the things you have to do <laughs> is get in good with the uh, officials that will probably be the ones rescuing you. And we had buttered up, her name was Megumi, to like us and get to know us. And, you know, we'd have lunch with her and everything. And she was the one who actually had to make the decision as to whether we're permanently banned or not. And to her credit, she believes in fair speech. So, uh, though the police and one particular police officer ripped off our badge, says we'll never see the blue zone, which is the important part of the conference ever again. That guy wound up apologizing to us. We just had to pledge fidelity to the UN cause. Yes, we <laughs> had our fingers crossed behind our back and they allowed us back in ultimately. Wow. Mark, you know, I wonder, do these people, generally speaking, believe what they're saying? Well, I would say... The, the young youth activists definitely believe it. A lot of the environmentalists, the activists believe it. I don't believe like the UN Secretary General. I don't believe John Kerry believes it. I don't believe a lot of these world leaders believe it. They look at it as a tool of government activism to achieve their ends. They're looking, especially the developing world. In previous years, I don't know about this year, but the highest attending delegations were the African delegations. And why would that be? Because the United Nations Climate Fund has promised their leaders, not the people, but the leaders, the most money. So 
I just think so much of this is just, it's, it's the thing to do. It's the way to ingratiate yourself. It's the way for trade, for connections. And it's the way for all these deals. And you get to, if you're in good with the UN, you get to decide which countries get cuts of which and how to regulate. It's a bureaucrat's dream to do all this. They don't really care about the science. And again, I'm going to bring up COVID. Your average public health director in any state or area of Canada, do you think they really believed um, all the rhetoric coming out about lockdowns and mask mandates and the vaccine had to be mandated. I mean, no, I don't think they believed in a second. First of all, it was a power trip. And second of all, they were just going along. And this is what people do. So I, I actually think, I just can't imagine John Kerry's even serious when he says things like, we have to end this and this is, have to end coal and gas. And this is a historic agreement. And, you know, there's, there's no other option for humanity. I mean, it's just, there's just no way he can believe that. There's none. His whole life is fossil fuels. I just, there's no way. He doesn't even know how many homes he owned. He married into the ketchup. <laughs> he was asked when he's running for president, how many, how many homes he owned. And he didn't know because it was his wife's home. Just like when he was asked, he was asked point blank at a congressional hearing. He bragged over and over. I do not own a private jet. I do not. Own. And it wasn't until like 45 minutes in, one of the questions of Republican congressman said, does your wife own a private jet? He's like, oh, yes, she does. Yeah. And that's how he got around it. He sat there when they let him get away with it for 45 minutes, screaming that he didn't own a jet. But so I just can't imagine he, I can't imagine Al Gore believes it. I mean, they probably have some underlying concern, but when it gets to the rhetoric about you know, all this, stuff, there's just no way they can believe it. I don't believe, I don't believe yeah. they can believe it. <laughs> <laughs> so Mark, when you look at it, do you consider that this is part of an agenda to have world government? Because if you control, you know, CO2, you control the world's energy, which is mostly fossil fuels. And if you control the world's energy, presumably you're controlling most of the world. Yeah, I mean, it's always been about global governance. It's always been about, you know, throughout history, the ruling class, most educated, most credentialed, uh, the Ivy League, the, uh, the the corporate media, the, 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 again, I hate to say ruling class, global elites, but They've always tried to find reasons why the rest of us, the unwashed masses, can't be free. And it could be war, terrorism, a virus, climate change now. And so what they do is they're trying to do here by collapsing energy, food, transportation, by the 15-minute cities, by the regulations on high-yield agriculture going after nitrogen, by going after methane, uh, by going after short-haul flights, by proposing carbon passports, uh, and by banning gas powered cars, they're putting themselves into this sort of it's it's yeah, it's almost like global uh, one global government. That's sort of an outdated phrase. It's going to be a global managerial class. And, uh, you know, between the U.N., the World Health, the World Economic Forum and the world governments colluding with them and then all the giant corporations colluding with them and then a subset of all the billionaires of what they want. Just think of a Davos World Economic Forum meeting. That's what this is leading to. Fewer and fewer people making more and more decisions for the rest of us. So when we get, I mean, this was proposed to um, Woodrow Wilson and president 1913. And the idea was this expertocracy, the managerial class will rule over our lives. And that's that's literally, it's been going on a hundred plus years, this idea, and they've had a big advancement with COVID. But the idea is the average person doesn't need to burden himself with all these decisions and free choices because they'll be told what to do. You'll mask up, you'll have a vaccine, you won't be able to drive this car. It's just like in East Germany, the government had one only proved government car. 
the East German Trabant. You had to wait sometimes <laughs> plus for it. The crappy Trabant, two cylinder, had to wait 10 years plus. Well, what are we at now? 2023, the allegedly once free West, you can have only one government approved car, an electric car, and they're banning gas powered cars without a vote of any legislatures pretty much anywhere that I, maybe EU voted on it. I don't know if Canada did. The United States never voted on it. Even California didn't vote on it. It was all executive order and then unelected bureaucrats. So I think they're not so much looking at it as, a, as a, this one world government as a global ruling class where all these decisions are taken out of our hands. You're not going to be able to get take that flight. You're not going to be able to order that hamburger. Or if you do, it's going to be very expensive, very rationed, and they're going to be softening us up to accept the lab-grown meat, insects, which is what they push, and uh, just all sorts of food restrictions that you know we've never actually, you know, and then, uh, there are self-imposed restrictions. This is self-imposed travel restrictions, self-imposed energy restrictions, self-imposed um, uh, movement restrictions. We've just never had to deal with this. It's insane. We're shooting ourselves in the foot. We're, we're allowing. Mm -hmm happen and that's it's not again it's not just like oh it's gonna be a global ruling class different than a global government it's not like there's gonna mm -hmm. be one government yeah because i'm getting at a collusion it's different you don't huh, need yeah. one more government you're gonna have all these corporations yeah and that's where esg comes in you can defund all the all the you know climate that's why you don't need to vote on this because even if congress rejects it john Kerry can go meet with blackrock or state street corporations and get them to sign the climate pledges, get them to not give out bank loans to energy projects. I mean, it's it's really incredible stuff. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to go back to reading the statement that I read in the beginning, which was in the final text. And maybe you can tell me, I'm told that this has significant loopholes, which will allow China and India to, to grow their fossil yes, fuel exactly. usage. The, the statement was this, that they wanted to be transitioning away from fossil fuels and energy systems in a just, orderly, equitable manner, accelerating yes. action in this critical decade so as to achieve net zero by 2050 in keeping with the science. So that sounds on the surface as if the OPEC people have backed down, and, and, and they have to a certain extent, as you said, because they want to be members of the club. But does this give a lot of loopholes for China, for example, to continue to expand with coal? Yes. I mean, these are this is non-binding. So first of all, these are just pledges. And second of all, yeah, China is still considered an emerging nation. Same with India. And, you know, they, they can just give their commitment. And John Kerry has said in the past, this is about global shaming. And of course, there's all sorts of other pressures that can be brought to bear on nations. But essentially... It, it just comes back to all these countries have to come up with pledges. Now, on one level, it's all just total BS from beginning to end. It's meaningless. They can produce documents that claim, oh, we're doing this or we're buying offsets. There was an article in the Financial Times, by the way, 20 up to 20% of land in African nations is being seized, bought up for no use by local Africans because wealthy Westerners are buying carbon offsets. And the way they're buying it is these carbon offset companies, private companies that are paying, you know, these African governments, they're just buying up the land and rates today and, and saying, we're not going to do anything with this land. It's a nature preserve. So they can't develop it. They'll never be able to extract energy from it. And they're calling it a new form of colonialism. So, my point is you can have all sorts of accounting tricks to say you're complying and look like you're complying. I don't know. In the end, this is a movement of all this groupthink and how these people can profit. And it appeals to their egos and they're in charge. 
So I wouldn't go with the actual wording. It's meaningless to say we're going to, whether we're going to end phase out fossil fuels or transition away. This is just this window dressing. The main thing is they're keeping the con alive. The farce continues next year, the year after, and that collusion is going to continue. And they're having unbelievable success since COVID. And they're going to continue to have success if climate is uh, rolled into public health. Mm -hmm. So for the average listener, I mean, how can they fight back? It might seem kind of overwhelming. Is it worth writing their congressman? Is it worth calling into talk radio? Like what would you suggest the average person do? I'd say gouge your eyes out and give up. I've always said that. <laughs> Just kidding. Craig, you can handle that. Go ahead. How can we fight back? Go ahead, Craig. <laughs> One of the most important things they got to do is, I think, uh, educate themselves. And there's a variety of ways you can do that. Certainly listening to podcasts like you have, Tom, I think is very important. Uh, learning the facts and uh, maybe following the right people on Twitter, joining organizations that are getting out the facts. And I would include ours among that at CFACT. And you can uh, get in touch with us at CFACT.org. That's C-F-A-C-T dot O-R-G. And we put out uh, updates from time to time to get them the information. So arming themselves, obviously voting for candidates that actually are consistent with their beliefs that show that uh, would question whether this is true or not. And I think sharing the information with your family and friends makes a real difference. So mm -hmm. I, I would like to say one note of encouragement. I do think while this whole bit that Mark was talking about with the transition versus the phase down and everything, I like to say, and I've been saying on other broadcasts, I think actions speak louder than words. Despite what you're hearing of everybody going on board this whole, you know, renewable energy gravy train, the developing world is not as much. You look at the UAE, for example, uh, Al Jaber, Sultan Al Jaber boasted he was spending some $30 billion on renewable energy projects around the world. They're spending $150 billion, five times as much. <laughs> developing their oil and gas reserves. You're looking at China, which in 2022 permitted two new coal plants every week in advancing what they're doing. And India is on target to have 25% more coal use by the year 2030 than they do right now. So though they put up a good show at uh, places like Dubai and they um, you know, gratuitously talk about being on board the climate bandwagon and reducing emissions, their actions are not saying that. It's only in the West, in countries like Canada and the United States, that we may actually be stupid enough to <laughs> do yeah. economic, economic hairy carry and gut our energy infrastructure. When you're looking ahead to the next two conferences, COPs of the Party, Conference of the Parties, 29 is in Azerbaijan, which is the second biggest producer of oil in the OPEC plus. They're in the plus category. And then Brazil, which is the ninth biggest exporter of oil in the world. Are we going to see more climate and energy realism, do you guys think, in the next two COPs? I think Al Jaber, when he made the comment, basically, that uh, we to get rid of our infrastructure means we'd have to go back to living in caves, he kind of backtracked from that. Uh, he was shamed into saying something and all but apologized for that comment. I think there's a certain protocol that you have at these meetings where you play the game. He kind of stepped out of bounds with his comments. So I don't know if during the conference, you're going to see more talk like that. And even the uh, President of uh, Argentina kind of backtrack after making some fairly uh, aggressive comments against climate alarmists. So my opinion is it will really depend a lot on the U.S. elections. We may see more of it, especially if President Trump were to get back in office. 
he all but said he's going to, you know, scrap this uh, whole Green New Deal offshore wind stuff. Uh, we aren't going to be funding loss and damage. I think he just said that in a speech within the last couple of days uh, or any sort of climate reparations. Uh, he addressed that, which is the loss and damage fund. I think leadership in the United States is necessary. If there's going to be a change in dialogue, uh, it probably start with America. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Mark, when you look at the situation with Trump, if he were to get back in, do you think he would be a lot braver in trying to actually do the things that Will Happer from Princeton was trying to get him to do in the first term? Yeah, well, as I said, you know, he actually did approve what Will Happer was trying to do. But Larry Kudlow told me himself that he stopped it because he, he didn't think that was a good idea to get Trump basically embroiled in a scientific debate over climate. And he brags openly and publicly that he, as a Trump administration official, stopped the whole Will Happer uh, climate committee and uh, the whole red team, blue team exercise. Donald Trump disappointed me on one level, but he was you know, best ever on another level. I mean, no president ever done what he did in terms of confronting climate. However, if we're going to take a moment to look at what he did, let's criticize him. First of all, he came down to the wire. Should he stay in? Should he pull out? He decided to pull out. But he had this, his old cabinet. Everyone was lobbying one way. I wish he had been stronger. He only pulled out, signaled the intent to pull out of the UN Paris Agreement. And I don't know that we, if we if we actually did get out of it, it was only for a few weeks after he lost the election. Yeah. But he could have pulled us out of the entire UN climate process. He, did, he chose not to do that. He could have started defunding or made an effort to defund the climate reports. He did not do that. We need to get out of this whole United Nations framework on climate that George H.W. Bush got us into with the Rio Earth Summit, which led to the creation of all these COP meetings and climate summits. Donald Trump didn't go far enough. I'm hoping, just like he did with the WHO, and he withdrew the U.S. from the WHO, he needs to withdraw the United States entirely from the U.N. climate process. I mean, that would be my dream. And he does it actually through the, the proper executive channels and also through defunding it. And mm -hmm. if he do that, that's what that's what's needed. I also think we need Mitch McConnell and the new House Speaker. They need to do resolutions. We need Republican leaders to just say not only no, but hell no to net zero. It's anti-human. We are pulling out. This is unscientific. It's nonsense. This has nothing to do with climate. Let's all adopt the Robert F. Kennedy Jr. motto, which, of course, he wanted to jail the climate skeptics and energy CEOs, and he wanted to punish politicians who were skeptical when I interviewed him in 2014 at the Climate March in New York City. But his new position is, I'm not going to talk about climate anymore. I don't care if you believe in climate. You don't have to believe in it. I believe climate has been hijacked by the World Economic Forum and the United Nations for, to for totalitarian control of society. That's all you need to do. That's, that's also a verbatim quote from RFK Jr. That's what I tell all candidates and anyone running. That's what people should be saying. Let's not even get, you don't even have to get into the science and science is important. But right now I interviewed Dr. Naomi Wolf and she's got the same position. Naomi Wolf, who was a Clinton Gore advisor, worried about climate change, now calls the Green New Deal fascist and actually retweeted someone the other day saying that um, climate communism. She said, oh, that's a great phrase to describe what's going on here. So we have allies on the left and we need to exploit them, whether it's Michael Moore and we have Jimmy Dore now, who used to be on uh, the Young Turks. We have Russell Brand, who all take this common sense position. Jimmy Dore goes even further. He's done segments about how CO2 is good. And he actually openly says, 
I just never questioned climate change before. These are progressive liberals who are now being red-pilled. He goes, I never questioned it. I just believed it. But he goes, after what I saw with COVID, I won't believe anything anymore. And I'm re-examining it. So I don't, you know, I'm, I'm willing to listen to anyone now. And he's actually becoming somewhat of a climate skeptic. And these are major climate-believing liberals prior to. And bear in mind, too, while we're gaining some liberals, we're losing some Republicans. The uh, governor of, yeah. of Montana... Uh, our own Republican and uh, governor here uh, in uh, Virginia have uh, become great advocates for renewable energy, have actually uh, all but told the uh, major media that they believe that climate change is real. There's a movement within the Republican Party. They are groups that are going out there and converting young Americans, but also a lot of congressional uh, leaders and even presidential nominees. I know that um, Nikki Haley, for example, has actually spoken to these folks and somewhat signed off on what their agenda is. And this is to try and bring the Republican Party into the climate fold, saying that while we may reject the Green New Deal and some of the extremism and that their argument goes, uh, nevertheless, the idea that climate is a catastrophe, we need to address it and maybe just do renewable energy through free market mechanisms, whatever that means, and uh, buy into some of the climate alarmism just a little bit slower than perhaps huh. the Democrats do. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, we have to wrap up, unfortunately. Yeah, it was a fun conversation with both of you. So Craig Rucker, president of the Washington, D.C.-based Committee for a Constructive Tomorrow, and Mark Morano, executive director of Climate Depot, which I love to go to to learn all my updates for climate change. So Mark and Craig, thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate it. So this is Tom Harris signing out from the other side of the story.